people think about physics as this very solitary thing. Um, and for Isaac Newton, I'm sure it was. But for most of us these days, it's really not. When I was a kid and I thought about what it was going to be like to, to do cosmology, I envisioned myself sort of, you know, in a room with a blackboard, you know, by myself contemplating the cosmos. And uh, since the pandemic, that's been more my situation and is not that effective. <laughs> I'm Michael Tamblin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo. We make e-readers and apps, we sell e-books and audiobooks all over the world, and we do it because we love reading, we want to make reading lives better. One of the best parts of the work that we do is that we get to talk with authors about their books, as well as the books that shape them as writers and as readers. This is Kobo in Conversation. My guest today is Katie Mack, theoretical cosmologist and the author of the book, The End of Everything, Astrophysically Speaking. It is a surprisingly happy tour of the handful of ways that the universe will likely end, which, as the book explains, are not equally depressing. If you caught our latest Staff Picks episode, you've heard me praising it as one of my favorite books of 2020, and I am so delighted to be speaking with the author. Now, Katie Mack, welcome to Kobo. Thanks very much for having me. I first heard you speak about the end of everything at a Perimeter Institute lecture online right at the beginning of the pandemic. And when mm. it the invite hit my inbox, I thought, well, this isn't going to help my current state of mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it did. Um, how has it been for you, essentially, on a virtual end-of-the-universe tour during a plague year? Yeah, it's been, it's been really uh, interesting. I think that, you know, I, I, I obviously I'm... I'm bummed that I didn't get to do a real book tour because I've been kind of looking forward to that. This is my first book and I thought it'd be fun to go around signing books and things like that. And, you know, I didn't get to do that. But um, I have been able to talk to a much broader range of audiences uh, and I've been doing a lot of these kind of virtual events. Um, and, I've, and I've been talking a lot about the end of the universe. And you would you would think that, that nobody wants to hear about that when they're already depressed about the world. But I think actually it it a lot of people have told me that it helps uh, to think about something so abstract and distant. And there's a bit of kind of catharsis thinking about like, oh, everything's going to be destroyed, you know, <laughs> um, when when you're so focused on like such a, you know, we're all in these really small spaces right now, right? We're all very confined. You know, a lot of us have been you know, sort of in the same room for a year. Like, I mean, you know, we you get out a little bit when you can, but um, but uh, for a lot of us, our world has just gotten a lot smaller. And being able to kind of separate yourself from that and think about these big, you know, just massive ideas and this unimaginable destruction, like something about that is a little bit comforting in a weird way. It is. The the end of everything almost every time is a very expansive conversation at least for a mm. while until it's not um yeah. <laughs> now i i have to make a confession and this is one of these sort of good news bad news things the good news is that uh, people who sell books uh, like me we get asked a lot for our favorite books of the year uh, by media and by each other and by family members who are looking for mm. you know, christmas gifts ideas and this was my favorite nonfiction book of the year for all kinds of oh, reasons. Cool. Oh, yeah. Fascinating topic. Perfectly explained. You know, gives a reader a feeling of how amazing it is to work in cosmology. Mm -hmm. There was just one problem. Okay. Um, I constantly stumbled on the name. And this is entirely my fault. Someone would ask, what's your favorite book of the year? And I would come mm -hmm. out super strong and say, oh, the end of every world, astrophysically speaking, <laughs> by Katie Mack. Everything, everything, the end of everything. Mm -hmm. I would always get there, and I always had the author. And there would just be this moment of lack of confidence, I think, between everything and universe. And people right, would look yeah. at me as if I was brain damaged. So I am... <laughs> Out here, you know, pushing this book semi-competently. And uh, and if I say the name of the book a lot as we are recording this, it is to atone for all of the other times that I didn't 
perfectly land it. <laughs> That's all right. I, I, I've been on a few sort of virtual events where somebody would say, and, you know, thanks very much, the Katie Mack, the author of The End of the Universe. And, I've, and like, I don't have time to correct them because it's right at the so, end. Wait, what? Like, oh, no, not quite. <laughs> it's, it's a, you know, we... It, we had a lot of discussion about the title um, with, you know, the publishers and, and uh, part of it was, you know, I wanted something kind of pithy, but that we also had to somehow get into get across that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't metaphorical. We mm-hmm. really meant the end of everything very literally. <laughs> Full stop. And yeah. And uh, and, you know, I didn't want to make it sort of dry, like how the universe is destroyed or, you know, like mm-hmm. I wanted mm-hmm. to I wanted something that. Anyway, it was it was a long discussion. Um, it's it's hard to it's hard to come up with a title that really portrays. Yes, we are talking about the total destruction of the universe, but also it's not too heavy, you know. Right, like, that's, <laughs> you know, that's but a in a good thing. way. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you are a cosmologist in your everyday life, and for mm-hmm. people listening who don't know the different flavors of physicist, can you describe what that mm-hmm. field covers? Yeah, so cosmology is really the study of the universe as a whole. So um, in astrophysics, there are a lot of different subfields. Uh, You know, you can do astrophysics about galaxies or stars or planets or, uh, you know, particle astrophysics about really high energy events in the universe and so on and so forth. And cosmology is the study of sort of the evolution of the cosmos itself, you know, the history of the universe, the future of the universe, anything on a really, really big scale where you're talking about um, either fundamental principles of how the universe works or its past and how it's changed over time. Uh, that that kind of thing is is all part of cosmology. And it, it feels like there's a hierarchy, like cosmologists are the coolest ones like this is <laughs> i mean you know i couldn't possibly argue against that <laughs> lots of people in the field spend a lot of time focusing on the beginning of everything which is mm-hmm. not what this book is called i'm um, right. on the very thin slices of time that make up the very beginning of the universe yeah. and even in the end of everything you spend some time orienting us to the big bang and cosmic inflation because mm-hmm. we need to know about the beginning to talk about the end yeah, but yeah. what can studying the end of things tell us that the beginning can't? Well, I think you know part of it is just that we we kind of want to have the whole picture, and you can't do that without covering both sides of that. Um, but um, also, you know, different ideas about the beginning of the universe do give you different possibilities for the ending and so they're they're really tied together like for example if you're talking about a cyclic universe uh, one that you know cycles from beginning to end and, and back you know back and forth uh, the the ending is part of the beginning of the next cycle right and so mm-hmm. uh, there there are connections there and just for when you have different ideas about for example the dark energy that's causing the universe to expand faster and faster those will lead to different possibilities for the ending and so by thinking about what what's going to happen in the distant future it helps you kind of piece together and conceptualize what's happening now and and what are the big forces that are governing uh the the cosmos and so you know some of these questions especially the, when you get to the weirder stuff like vacuum decay, where it's it's really connected to particle physics and and the fundamental f- physics of the universe, um, those just asking those questions can really lead you down interesting paths uh, for better understanding the theory. The book covers five different options: mm-hmm. heat death, big crunch, big rip, vacuum decay, and the last one you titled the like bounce, but it sounds like. Mm-hmm. The, um, sounds like you would describe it slightly differently as um, well, cyclical. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, so there's there it's it's one of those things that I'm talking about a few different possibilities that all have similar characteristics about some kind of cycle and and a bounce is is kind of one of the ways to to talk about that. You have been touring this book and more mm-hmm. generally speaking about this field of research for a while now, and there are amazing mm-hmm. videos where you describe each of them in detail. But just in case you were getting a bit tired of talking about them, I'm going to try to mix it up for you. Okay. So for each of the ends of the universe, I have attempted to summarize it in a haiku. And for each one, you get to assign a grade in terms of its ability to encapsulate the theory 
And then we can talk a bit about the things that don't fit into 17 <laughs> syllables. And you get okay. to choose which order we do them in. And you could be harsh. You know, oh, after all, this, okay. is, you know, this is yours and a lot of other people's life work here. So they deserve good poems. <laughs> okay. And you've made it clear from the very beginning of this book that there are no happy endings here. So <laughs> these are not happy poems. Okay. So now you get to choose which one you would like first. Okay. Um... Uh, let's uh, let's start with the big crunch. That's uh, that's a good that's a good starting okay. point. Okay. Big crunch. After expansion, it crunches back down again. Hope you have sunblock. <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, <laughs> yeah, I am. Uh, I'm gonna. Gosh, I have to give a grade. Are we doing like uh, you know A B C oh, yeah. that kind yeah, of yeah. grade? Yeah. Ooh. Uh, a B plus. Okay. I'll say. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So when we're um, when we're talking about Big Crunch, what are what yes. are some of the main principles we want to we want to make sure we understand? Uh, I mean, you know, the main the main idea behind the Big Crunch is just that you take the the current expansion of the universe and reverse it. So right right now we know that the universe is expanding, galaxies are getting farther away from each other. Just just dial that back, turn that around, and you get a big crunch. Um, you get uh, everything's coming together, and um, and it all ends in fire. <laughs> you, know, you end up with uh, uh, all of the radiation, all the cosmic radiation gets compressed and, and incinerates everything. And that's uh, you, you have a wonderful allusion to that with the sunblock in the, in the poem. Very good. Um, you do need something more powerful than that because you're not just dealing with, uh, you know, UV. You've got gamma yes. rays. You've got a huge sort of, co you know, space full of plasma. So it, it gets pretty bad. But um, but yeah, that's that's the big crunch. That was the part that was most interesting to me is that it's not just mm. the matter that's floating around out there. It is yeah. all of the radiation that has ever been given out. Everything comes back down. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and as the as the universe is compressing, it's being all that radiation is being hardened. You know, it, it's being um, driven up in frequency, and therefore getting more powerful and, and more dangerous. Uh, so, you know, just the the way that that UV radiation is more harmful than visible light for us. Um, if you take all the visible light in the universe and you compress it, you're going to get harder and harder radiation. UV, X-ray, gamma ray. Uh, and so as you evolve toward the big crunch, um, you're you're getting into this more and more dangerous radiation environment and this and space is just getting brighter and brighter and hotter and hotter. And eventually the, the sort of crescendo is that you get to the point where there's so much hard radiation in you know, so-called empty space, that uh, it starts to ignite the surfaces of stars. You get thermonuclear explosions mm -hmm. across the surfaces of stars. And that's uh, just this fantastic image. Big finish. <laughs> okay, next one. All right, let's do um, let's do the big rip. This is a this is a fun one. Okay, this... actually, wait, wait, no, wait, wait. Okay. Sorry, sorry. Now let's do the heat death. I want to go in order because it's a little bit easier to explain. Let's do the heat death. Okay, first. heat death. Yeah. Dark energies push until expansion slows down. We're cold and alone. Ooh, uh, you know, I have to, I have to give that one a C. Okay. Um, because because it doesn't, the expansion doesn't slow down. It keeps speeding up. It's just, it's, n it's not that the expansion slows down. Is that there's just nothing left to do. Okay. So got it. Got so, it. Got it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the way that the the way that the the heat death works is that you just have more and more expansion, um, and it gets and the expansion goes faster and faster, but eventually everything is so separated, you know, all the mm -hmm. distant galaxies are so distant that there's kind of nothing left and everything else slows down because there are no more kind of processes in the universe, you know, um, everything kind of fades away and decays and, uh, and the universe is left cold and dark and empty. All right. Really, you were generous with the C. I'm assuming you're grading <laughs> on a curve. Okay. That's by far yeah, the saddest yeah. one. That is the saddest one, yes. <laughs> which is yes. Which is one of the things you talk about through the book is y you kind of do give a bit of the emotion of each one of these. You know, some yeah. of them are, you know, big and sudden and, you know, mm -hmm. and abrupt. But this one is definitely the long goodbye. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, and it's funny, too, because it's also the one that's 
apparently, based on our current understanding, the most likely. At least it doesn't require any new ideas. Um, it seems to be, you know, if you just extrapolate what's happening now, you get to a heat death. And uh, that that makes a lot of people really sad. You know, when um, what, uh, there was a quote I, I took from um, one of my colleagues in the book, uh, Harani Apiris, who was talking about how sometimes she gives talks about this and people cry right? like people I, get really sad i totally about understand the, that about the the idea that the universe is just going to fade away and everything's going to just decay into you know this kind of waste heat of creation and um and there will be nothing left all right next one mm -hmm. let's go big rip okay bonds that make matter need a cosmological constant or stuff breaks Ooh, i like that that's good uh i'll give that i'll give that an a minus that's, that's nice um uh yeah so um so that's making reference to the fact that uh, with in a heat death scenario dark energy the stuff that's making the universe expand faster is a cosmological constant it's just a a sort of uh, property of the universe that you get this expansion and a nice mm -hmm. thing about a cosmological constant is that it doesn't tear things apart it just kind of makes more space moves things around but doesn't actually mess with you know individual galaxies or or stars or planets or anything like that but if you have a more powerful kind of dark energy called phantom dark energy that can actually destroy stuff. Um, so, you know, when we talk about the universe is expanding, generally we just mean that, you know, galaxies are getting farther apart. We don't mean like this room is expanding or anything like that. But with a, a, a phantom dark energy kind of expansion, you would eventually get that this room is expanding. It's, it's something that sort of, there's this expansive force that builds up within objects and destroys them from within. And so you'd get, you know, First, the galaxy clusters would be pulled apart, and then galaxies, and then solar systems, and then planets and stars, and, and then eventually atoms themselves are sort of ripped apart by this, uh, this ever-increasing dark energy. And that's, that's the big rip. It's by far the hardest one. It, first, because it's really hard to make a haiku with the words cosmological <laughs> constant. There's a lot of True, syllables. Yes. <laughs> and it's also virtually impossible to fit phantom dark energy into a haiku. It's yes. like... Yeah. Yeah. No, that was a, that was a very good effort. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So next we have uh, we got to do vacuum decay, right? All right. Uh, there's All right. Uh, there is a lot of uh, a lot of work that went into this one. So I made four different tries, and Ooh, and you can okay. choose. Okay. Okay. Thought physics was stable. False vacuum jumps to true. By standard model. Ooh, that's good. Okay, that's number I one. I like that one. Okay. Number two. False vacuum until universe says, hold my beer, then weirdness <laughs> ensues. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. Number three. Who suspected that quantum tunneling could ruin your day? <laughs> and then finally. Nice. Yeah. If the Higgs field says... I might have a midlife crisis. We're all kind of screwed. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like all of them. I'm giving that's, them all. That's a all a. I got for uh, for vacuum decay. Those, those are great. Those are great. A for all of them. They're they're fantastic. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. No, this those and they and they they really you know you you get across every every little piece of that story in, in a different uh, in a different haiku. I, I like that. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so the idea behind vacuum decay, of course, is that uh, that the universe might not be stable. Um, it might have this kind of flaw built into it, where a quantum tunneling event, a sort of random quantum process at a subatomic level at one point in the universe, could occur that would create a bubble of a new kind of space, and that's called a true vacuum. That would mean that our space, the, the space we live in, is a false vacuum, and then there would be this true vacuum bubble, and that would just randomly form somewhere in space and expand out and destroy everything. Um, and it's a uh, it's a, a particularly intriguing possibility because it's totally unpredictable. You know, a, a, a quantum tunneling event 
uh, cannot be predicted. Um, it could happen at any moment. Um, you can you can put probabilities on on how long it would take before it occurred. So there's sort of a lifetime that you can estimate for the cosmos in this in this scenario, and it, you you get a number like ten to the power of a hundred. So you know, a very long time from now. Uh, but we can't say for certain. That's all probability. So it's um it's it's sort of my favorite. Uh, possibility because it is so random and because you can have such a tiny thing, a subatomic event that could end up destroying the entire universe. And is is that quantum tunneling event the the only kind of event that could precipitate this? Or is there any other way that we could get from the false vacuum state that we're potentially in right now to the true vacuum mm -hmm. state where everything ends? So in principle, uh, if you have a, a really high energy event uh, that can perturb what's called the Higgs field. So there's this, the Higgs field is this sort of energy field that, that pervades all of space. You might have heard of the Higgs boson, this particle that was discovered at the Large Hadron Collider. Uh, the Higgs field is, is connected to that particle. Um, and the Higgs field kind of determines the it determines the uh, like the, the laws of physics in our universe for, for particle physics. And um, so in principle, if you can find a way to excite that field, which means just kind of move the energy around in that field uh, in a certain way, then you could get, you could create another, you know, a bubble of, of true vacuum. But as far as we know, that's not really possible to do, um, you know, with like particle collisions or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. There've been a lot of really high energy particle collisions in the universe through, you know, uh, just cosmic events, and none of them have set off this uh, this vacuum decay, and um, and it looks like from sort of the theoretical side, it, it's very, it would be a very hard thing to to make that happen other than a quantum tunneling event. So probably um, if it can happen at all, then it would be from this this just random thing that would happen somewhere in the cosmos and. You know, we don't know for sure if that's really possible because there's a lot of the theory that we're still trying to figure out. But um, if it is, then uh, it could technically happen at any moment, but probably would not happen for a very, very, very long time. And one of the points you you raise in the chapter is, you know, especially at the very beginning of the universe, we had a lot of very high energy events going on. So if yes. if if high energy events were one of the things that was going to kick this off, the, there have been opportunities in the past that really haven't been taken. Yeah, up. yeah, exactly, exactly. And and you know, and some people worried about things like the Large Hadron Collider, particle colliders causing vacuum decay. Like that was something that people um, have at various times kind of uh, panicked about. And you know, just to be clear. Anything that we can do in terms of colliding particles on Earth has been done at much higher energies, billions and trillions of times by the cosmos itself, and none of those have set off anything like this. So, um, you know, what we can do here on Earth is is really not anywhere close to doing anything that would affect the Higgs field. So, uh, you know, that is not a thing to worry about. But is is it safe to say that this is your favorite one? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for for a number of reasons. I mean, one because you are connecting subatomic physics to the destruction of the entire cosmos, which I think is just a cool idea as a physicist. That's that's exciting that's to me. That's just a good time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and then also uh because it's it's uh so random, you know, <laughs> like it's this sort of this sort of sort of Damocles like hanging over the cosmos. Um I think that's a fun idea. And then also, you know, it would be very quick and painless. You know, uh, this this bubble of true vacuum as it when it forms, it would expand out. It would expand out at about the speed of light, so you wouldn't see it coming, uh, because by the time you see the light from it, it is on top of you, uh, and you wouldn't feel it when it hit you because uh, it's traveling much faster than your nerve imp impulses, right? So so you don't get a message from you know when you know, when you start to be disintegrated by it, uh, your your brain doesn't notice. Um, and then there's no tragic aftermath, you know, nobody's going to miss you. It's just everything's done. It's just clean and over and finished. So I, I don't know, that that kind of appeals to me. It's very, it's very neat. Clean. Mm -hmm. For the last one, I, uh, um, yes. for the listeners, we, we should do a bit of a, a bit of a nomenclature check. When we're talking about brains in the context of mm. a cyclical universe, what are we talking about? Yes. Uh, so a brain, uh, B-R-A-N-E, sort of short for membrane, 
is a a kind of a surface or um, a, a, a kind of space that has a, a certain number of dimensions. So right, like like we have three dimensions in our everyday life. Uh, you know. Uh, a piece of paper is roughly two-dimensional, though it does have a little bit of a third dimension in it. Um, and it's possible that that our universe, this these three dimensions of space, might live in a higher dimensional space. So there might be another spatial dimension that we can't perceive that goes in some other direction. Um, and so our universe might be a three-dimensional brain uh, sort of surface in a four-spatial-dimensional uh, space. So. It gets a little complicated because when we talk about dimensions in physics, we often talk about time as the fourth dimension. Um, uh, but uh, when we just talk about spatial dimensions, you know, dimensions you can move around in or whatever, we have three, mm -hmm. and we could live in a space that has more, and then we could be a you know a three dimensional, you know, three spatial dimensional brain in that higher space. Okay, so based on that, here's mm -hmm. here's here's my okay. my shot for cyclical universe ending. Okay. Maybe brains touching keeps the Big Bang rebanging. Ekpyrotic spark. Nice, nice. Yeah, I go, I got to give that one an A as well. That's that's fantastic. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's referring to the ekpyrotic model of the universe, which is uh, this idea that um, well, it's a, it's a cyclic cosmology where you have a a contracting universe that then. Um, hits a new big bang and then expands and then contracts again and you get a new big bang. Um, and that's, that's really where the, the term bounce kind of comes from that, that bouncing from the contraction to the, to the expansion phase. Um, but, uh, in the first version of the ekpyrotic universe that was proposed, uh, the idea was that that contraction, that, that bounce was actually two parallel brains in a higher dimensional space kind of hitting each other and bouncing off. And so um, as the brains are kind of con coming together, you have this contraction, then you have the, um, the bounce where they literally sort of bounce off each other and then they expand in their own space. Um, and sort of new versions of ekpyrotic universe don't require these, these extra brains and you have, you know, it's governed by other kinds of physics, but I, I really like the, the imagery of these, these, you know, higher dimensional spaces coming in and colliding with each other where, you know, we could be sitting on this brain here and we don't even know that there's a whole other universe, like parallel universe right next to us that's coming toward us and it's going to hit us and, and spark a new Big Bang and, and destroy the cosmos. So um, that's that's another sort of out of nowhere. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, literally out of out of this other space um, uh, kind of ending of the universe. This model, in terms of the the genesis of the book, kind of got added at the last minute. This is sort of the, the physics equivalent yeah. of late-breaking news. Oh, yeah, yeah. So so what happened was um, one of the originators of the ekpyrotic model was my PhD advisor, uh, Paul Steinhardt at Princeton. And um, so I was, you know, I was writing up the the ekpyrotic uh, part of this um of this chapter and, you know, going through the thing with the brains and everything. And, and, um, I, I, uh, sent him an email to, to ask about, um, you know, just if there are any updates and if I got the physics right. And he said, actually, <laughs> we have, we have a new model that came out a month ago, um, that, uh, you know, totally rewrites this whole picture. And so I ended up having a couple of phone conversations with him and going through like, you know, it was, it was, during the time I was writing the book, um, right up until I was turning in my final draft, uh, there were, you know, there, there were these new developments in that model and, and totally rewriting the, the mechanism uh, that this whole thing was based on. And so it was a, it was a bit of a challenge to, um, to then say, okay, I need to, to start from scratch on this chapter and, and really rewrite everything and, and try and get uh, try and get this put together properly because you know like he was my PhD advisor I don't want to I don't want <laughs> to insult his uh, his model in any way I want to properly represent what he's done and I want to get the the latest uh, physics in there um, but it was it was definitely very very you know close up to the wire um, revision and it I mean it helps to make clear that this is all still very much like emerging and active science. None of this is yeah. settled right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
you know, there were other uh, aspects of, of that, that that came in right at the last minute, you know, um, like there was another there's another bouncing cosmology uh, example that I put in there that has to do with a, a sort of previous anti-universe that that becomes our universe through this this transition at the Big Bang um, that that was only published a few months before uh, I had to turn in my draft. Um, and then some of, some of the ideas around vacuum decay were very, very new. You know, uh, I was reading papers that were published within within weeks of, uh, of when I was writing that book. Um, you know, it's it is all very it is all very new and very actively changing and emerging. And and even and especially the, the chapter about um, you know, how we're going to figure this out. What is the future of, of this this area of study? Um, that was all talking about telescopes that are being built right now and, and surveys that are going around right now and, and um, new discoveries and, and things that we're going to launch into space in the next couple of years. Um, it's all it's all really actively changing all the time. And, and that's part of what makes it so interesting and exciting is that this is a really great time to learn about the end of the universe and, and this, the, the science of it, because there, there are so many developments coming up and, and we're learning so much. You are always very careful and generous in this book to let us know whose research has contributed to each of these theories. Of the, of the five, which are the ones mm -hmm. that felt most squarely in your wheelhouse in terms of your field of study, and which ones yeah. were opportunities to dig into someone else's field of research or someone else's area of investigation? So, so the only one that I have actively written papers about, um, and and that papers being one paper at this point, is uh, vacuum decay. So, um, and and really, I started very much, you know, digging into vacuum decay because I was already thinking about the book and I was already kind of interested in in this idea. Um, but uh, but the other topics, you know, I my area of research mainly is uh, dark matter. Well, dark matter and the early universe. And uh, I do talk about dark matter in the book um, it, it, a couple of times. It's, you know, this invisible stuff that holds galaxies together. We don't know what it's made of. Um, and uh, I talk about the early universe a lot in, in one of the chapters where I'm sort of walking us through where, where we are and where we're going. Um, but, uh, but, you know, the star of, of the end of the universe story is really dark energy. And I've never... Uh, written a paper about that. That's that's a little bit outside my my usual wheelhouse um, because the the observational side is is all about sort of mapping galaxies and stuff, and I, I don't do observational work. And then the the theory side, uh, a lot of that is sort of you know deep uh, quantum field theory stuff that that I haven't worked on either. So um, it's it, I, there was a lot that I was learning in terms of the the you know the really fundamental research behind these topics. But it's also true that um, that because of the field I work in, you know, early universe theory and cosmology and, you know, I've worked on sort of galaxy formation and stuff like that. Um, all of these topics kind of are are very connected to to the work I do. So, you know, um, understanding how the heat death works and, and uh, how the big rip works and all of these things are, are very much things that I've I've come through in my own studies and in my own research, even if I haven't been actively contributing to those fields. You are a researcher who has this major presence in talking to non-science people about science mm -hmm. through mm -hmm. Twitter, uh, your, on Astro Katie, um, on mm -hmm. YouTube, in lectures, and now in this book. If you were to look at your time spent, what's the percentage of time look like right now between research talking about the end of everything and then the mm -hmm. other general public facing, you know, let me help you understand science better. Um, and then, you know, the rest of your life. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a, it's a bit skewed right now because I've been doing a lot of book stuff and, you know, book promotion um, in the last year. And, uh, and so that's, that's kind of changed the balance quite a bit, but um you know, officially, my my time, according to you know my faculty responsibilities, uh, you know, agreed with my university, all of that, um, is is somewhere around a third uh, of each of research, teaching, and outreach. Um, so, uh, I 
it may be a little bit more on the research and outreach part, a little bit less on the teaching part. So I've maybe something more like, you know, um, uh, kind of research and outreach are, are similar in terms of the slice of time. And then, yeah. then teaching is, is a bit less. Um, and that's, that's been a nice balance that I've been able to, uh, to set up with my university so that I, I do have more time to, both stay engaged in in my research and really you know move that forward and supervise students and um, you know go to conferences and and all of the kinds of things you have to do as as a researcher. So I really do have time to do that and also have this big public um, public facing side and you know um, also you know do the teaching responsibilities my my department department needs and and so it's. You know, it's it's a it's still kind of a difficult balance. Sometimes um, I I still uh, have you know it's, it's not always easy to juggle everything, um, but uh, but I think that it's it's a it's a good sort of uh, weighting of of all the things I like to do and yeah. So right now I think I'm I've, I've I'm putting more time into the public side than usual because of um, because of the book, but. Um, then this next semester, I'm, I'm going to be sort of shifting back more into into research being the the main the main thing. Okay, so if your dean is listening, like we're checking all the boxes here, it's all it's all <laughs> yeah. it's all good. Yeah. Every once in a while, uh, in the end of everything, you hint at the math behind the theories, and I think a couple of times mm-hmm. you even say, oh, "If I had more time, I would take you into some of the yeah. really beautiful equations that describe this." Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, they they say that you know, talking about music is like dancing about architecture. You know, how <laughs> how different is the experience of thinking and talking about these ideas when you can get at the math behind them? Uh, yeah, you know, it's it's funny. A lot of um, a lot of physicists I work with have a very a very sort of intuitive connection to the mathematics in in the sense that you know. If if I'm talking to them about some uh, some physics concept, like the first thing they'll do is write down the equations, and then that's that's what really makes it clear to them. And I'm a little bit different on that regard. Like I um, I I do get something out of the equations, and if I understand the concept, the equations are meaningful to me. But I think more in terms of the the sort of physical concepts and and you know sort of imagery, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, and so for me, if I have a really good intuitive analogy, um, if I if I can visualize what's going on, that helps that helps me interpret the equations. That that helps bring the the physics to life for me. And so, um, so I think that's that's one of the things that helps me with writing books like this, or 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 you know explaining things to the public, which is that like, um, for me, I need to understand it at a really deep level. Uh, that isn't mathematical in order to to get something out of it and in order to to work with it. And so uh, I don't assume that I can just write down the equation, and then you'll get it. You know, mm-hmm. um, I I for me the mathematics uh, can be really important and helpful, but but for the concepts, I I usually come out at, about it a different in a different direction. Um, but there are there are cases where. If I if I could give you the mathematics, then, then I could uh, I could get across an, an idea that I can't do in words. Um, so uh, you know there are certain things about like talking about symmetries and things like that where if I if you could look at the equation and really understand the equation, then it would make sense to you uh, in a way that that there there really isn't a good analogy. There isn't a good sort of conceptual thing. It's just a mathematical principle. And and those things are the hardest things to get across um, in uh, in words. So then we, we just have to give it, convince the publisher to do like an extended dance mix of the book with, with all of the math. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when did the idea to write this come along? Um, it was, it was a, a few years ago. So I... I started thinking about a book in the abstract before I started thinking about this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and what it was, was, uh, you know, I was thinking about writing a book and talking with some, some agents and publishers. And I 
you know, as, at first I thought I might write a book about dark matter because that's that's what I usually work on. But um, but then I realized that when I give talks uh, to you know public audiences, you know, at planetariums or whatever, uh, the one of the things that that people get most excited about is the end of the universe. And I also realized that over the years, whenever I've had a chance to talk about one of these weird end of universe scenarios, I really jump at it. So, you know, when I was in grad school, we had to do this, you know, graduate seminar thing. And I, I did my talk about the big rip. And then uh, when I was a, a postdoc, I was, I went to some talks about vacuum decay. And then I, I was doing a public talk about something. And I, I managed to, to use vacuum decay as an analogy for something about seizing the day or whatever. Um, and I, I, I had a lot of fun sort of throwing that in there. And I just realized that some of these, um, some of these topics are, are not only really interesting to me, but also things that, that the public responds to. You know, that an audience gets kind of excited about uh, the idea of the universe tearing itself apart. Right. <laughs> um, and, so, and so it was literally, you know, live every day to its fullest because that pyrotic disaster is just around the corner. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah, that, that kind of thing, you know, or, or, you know, vacuum decay, like you never know what's going to happen next. So. Right. You know, like it could come at any moment. Just have fun. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so, so I realized that that I the these are really fun things to talk about. And also, I realized that the the research I've done and the the education I've had um, really makes me kind of the right person to to write this uh, story. You know, because I've I've worked in enough of these areas, and I I have the expertise, and and also you know I'm. Um, it's something I'm really excited about, and I, I know all the right people to talk to about each of the topics, and and it just all fell together as like this is this is the book that I should write right now. You know, um, this is something mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna have fun with. I'm gonna be able to put in all of my favorite cosmology facts, all my my favorite you know little <laughs> jokes, um, and um, and uh, you know get shove a lot of other things into the footnotes, and 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 this will be this will be fun for me, and it's and it's a topic that that isn't really discussed as much in the popular press. You know, there are a lot of books about the beginning of the universe and, and really not that many about the end. And so it was an opportunity to dig into something that was not, you know, not talked about enough and, and could be really, really fun. Were there any authors who were in the back of your mind when you started the, thinking about writing a, a science book for a popular audience? Um. I mean, you know, I, I thought I thought a lot about a brief history of time because that's the that's the book that I first read um, to to start thinking about cosmology when I was you know basically a kid. I, I think I I think I must have read that when I was about ten years old. Um, so that was that was a, a book that that came to mind a lot and in 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 interesting ways. So one of the one of the ways it came to mind is that you know that it was a really sort of elegant um, discussion of a lot of deep topics. Another thing that, that that I thought about when I thought about that book is the fact that um, it's it's got this reputation as being one of the most bought but least read books in history. Right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and a lot of people found it just, you know, beautiful but incomprehensible. And so I I really wanted my book to be something that people would buy and read, and that it would be um, a book that that could be understood and and wasn't you know, wasn't just this beautiful, elegant thing, but was actually accessible and actually comprehensible to the general public and, and not just to people who were already sort of deep in this in this field. Um, so so I thought a lot about that book, sort of both as a as an aspiration as a, and as a cautionary tale um, in some ways. Um, but uh, in terms of other books, you know, like I I don't read much uh nonfiction. Um, most of what I read is, is sci-fi. <laughs> so I spend, I spend a lot of time reading science fiction, um, occasionally other kinds of sort of literary fiction. Um, I, I, I reread the Jane Austen novels a lot. Um, uh, there's the, my, my sort of literary diet is, is not science, mm-hmm. uh, is not, uh, not nonfiction. And I think there are a couple of reasons for that. It's hard for me to read a popular science book that's anywhere near my area of expertise uh, or even outside it really because it's hard I I spend a lot of time kind of back translating 
to the technical version. Mm-hmm. You know, so if I'm reading if I'm reading a book about um, you know black holes and they say something about you know imagine that the fabric of space is this curved uh, you know sheet or something like I'm I'm reading that and I'm thinking okay they're talking about the curvature and they're you know this is the these are the equations that they're gonna, they're referencing but they're not actually saying that but this is what they mean and and so it's it's like a lot of extra work for my brain mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I and I tend to you know. And it tends to be at a level where I already kind of know the content, and so it's it's just not it's just not that much fun for me to read books like that generally. Um, and so, uh, so what is fun for me is to read about spaceships <laughs> and, and to read about like you know uh, time travel and you know future societies and and all of that. I I find that kind of I find that really good for escapism, for just like getting me out of my head and you know, being in a totally different mindset. So I, I just read, I read a ton of stuff that, um, that, uh, just, you know, kind of takes me away from, uh, from my daily life. Okay. As a, as a bookseller, I, I think I get fired if I don't ask you for, for science fiction titles that you've, uh, that you've have really grabbed you lately. Oh, um, gosh, there's so many things. Um, so some of my favorite authors right now in science fiction are, uh, let's see. Um, so, uh, oh gosh, I'm just going to blank on everybody's name suddenly. <laughs> I should, <laughs> um, I should have, uh, I should have primed you, you should, up ahead Yeah, of you should warn me. Um, so Martha Wells, uh, Becky Chambers, uh, Anne Leckie, um, oh, yeah. uh, let's see, um, Who's the author yeah. who wrote Murder, the Murderbot the... and Ancillary Justice? Oh gosh, That's, yeah, 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 fantastic. yeah, fantastic. And then um, the fifth season, uh, N.K. Jemisin. I just uh, I just read a a, a lovely um, debut novel um, called Winter's Orbit by Everina Maxwell. Um, that was a really that was a really great book. Um, I, I, uh, I just read, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's latest, uh, ministry for the future. Mm-hmm. That was really good. Sort of, uh, you know, that's, that's a lot closer to nonfiction than I, than I usually go. <laughs> Actually, his stuff is very, uh, you know, very sort of hard science. Um, so that was great. Um, I, um, I, I just read, uh, I've been reading, um, a lot of John Scalzi's stuff. His stuff is always a lot of fun. Um, uh, Chuck Wendig, uh, Wanderers is an amazing mm-hmm. novel. Um, gosh, I, I could, I could go oh, yeah. on for a very long time. <laughs> but, um, no, that, was, that was great. My, my book selling mission yeah. has now been fulfilled. Okay. Excellent. Isaac Newton famously did some of his most foundational work during the year when the Black Death was ravaging London. For, mm. for you and, and for your colleagues in theoretical physics, has this mm-hmm. been a productive time? Uh, you know, I think for for a lot of us, it's not been very productive at all. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of a lot of my colleagues have, um, you know, have children at home, and when they can't go to school, like it's just that extra childcare responsibility makes it impossible to to do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's been, you know, it's that's that's a lot, a lot of what a lot of people have been facing during the pandemic, um, just the disruption at home. So I, I don't have that, uh, going on, but, um, I know that's been a, a challenge for a lot of people. Um, it's also, you know, people think about physics as this very solitary thing. Um, and for Isaac Newton, I'm sure it was, but for most of us these days, it's really not, you know, when I, when I thought about being a physicist, when I was a kid and I thought about what it was going to be like to, to do cosmology, I envisioned myself sort of, you know, in a room with a blackboard, you know, by myself contemplating the cosmos. And uh, since the pandemic, that's been more my situation and is not that effective. <laughs> so, um, you know, it is, I am, I work much better when I can go and talk to people, when I can mm-hmm. attend conferences and, and, you know, go to seminars and share ideas and, and uh, you know, have the morning coffee discussion about new papers that have that have come out. You know, that kind of collaboration is like that's what makes me a more effective researcher. And we try to 
we try to simulate that online. You know, there's a lot of Zoom meetings. I, you know, I have meetings with my students and my colleagues and um, we, we do online conferences, but it's, it's just not as, it's not as good. And, and um, I also find that, you know, going to the office was actually really helpful for me for like focus and going, even going to a cafe to like take some papers with me and go sit in a cafe and, and, re, you know, read a bunch of, read a bunch of papers, drink some tea, you know, collect my thoughts, like not being able, not being able to do that is a little bit harder as well. You know, it, when I'm, when I'm just in, in one room all the time in my, in my apartment, that's, that's just, I don't think as well. You know, I, I, the, the way that I work is, is much better in collaboration in con- in conversation. And, and so I find, I've found it a lot less, um, a lot less, uh, easy. And then, you know, also it hasn't been an, so much an issue for me, but a lot of my colleagues also are, are, you know, doing their teaching online and that takes a lot more time than teaching in a classroom, right. just tie, you know, putting together videos and online lessons and stuff like that. So there are a lot of ways that it's, it's really disrupted the astrophysics and, and physics communities. I've, I've talked to people about this, this last year as being the time when, when introverts have discovered the limits of their introversion. And <laughs> it turns out we actually yeah. do need people and we need people more than we thought. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm sort of, I'm a little bit extroverted for a physicist maybe. Um, but, uh, but I, yeah, I mean, I, I need to be somewhat around people. You know, I find that I don't, I don't work well in a, in a quiet room by myself, even, even when I'm like, uh, when I'm at work, Sometimes I'll, I'll leave my office and, and go off to the coffee shop or the library or something where there are other people around just because mm-hmm. that sort of energy is, is helpful for me. But you did just become a pilot. Yes. <laughs> yeah, <I did laughs> was, that, that. was that your pandemic project? That, yeah, pretty much. I mean, I think, I think what happened there was, um, you know, I, I had just moved to Massachusetts um, to sort of wait out the pandemic. And I'm, I'm in this lovely area in, in Amherst where there's there's lots of, you know, woods and I can go on hikes and I can go running through the forests and stuff. And, um, and uh, so I was, you know, I was trying to do stuff like that, but mostly I was just in a room, right? And I think that, that the isolation kind of got to me and I saw that there was a, uh, a, a little airport nearby that did flight lessons. And, um, and it's something I'd been kind of thinking about in the back of my mind for a very long time that, um, you know, I, it would be, it would be neat to be, to just try that out, see about learning to fly airplanes. And, you know, I had, I had no other hobbies. I had a lot of, you know, potentially I had some time. I mean, you know, there's, you never have free time when you're an academic, but, um, (laughs) you know, I, I didn't have anything else going on in my life. And so I thought, well, this is the time to try it out to see how it goes. And so I signed up for an intro lesson and then I just kept going back and and realized that, you know, I was suddenly totally obsessed with aviation. And so I um, so I I went through the whole thing. I got my private pilot license, uh, I guess, about two weeks ago. Um, And uh, I'm going to go on for more uh, more training and and. I'm, you know, kind of excited to see where that takes me. I'm actually, I'm scheduled to go for a flight this afternoon. So it's, um, I'm, I'm doing a lot of that. We'll let you get to it then. Katie, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. And, and thank you for the haikus. They were excellent. <laughs> I have been speaking with Katie Mack, author of The End of Everything, Astrophysically Speaking. Find it and the other books we've been talking about, along with previous episodes of the show, at kobo.com slash conversation, or click through to the show notes. Make sure to catch every conversation by subscribing wherever you listen, and leave us a review because it helps other readers find us. Kobo and Conversation is produced by Nathan Maharaj and hosted by me, Michael Tamblin. Thank you for listening.